Welcome to Mom and Up. With your co-host, developmental psychologist, Dr. Marty Erickson, and Dr. Aaron Erickson, maternal child health specialist and nurse practitioner. Here's my grandma, Marty. And here's Aaron, my mom and mom. Welcome to Mom Enough. I'm Erin Erickson here with my mom, Marty, and I am so thrilled to uh, introduce our guest today uh, because she is an author of a book that I absolutely loved. Our guest today, Jenny Quilter, teaches at New York University. Her most recent book is New York School Painters and Poets, Neon and Daylight. However, today she's talking to us about her latest book, Hatching, Experiments in Motherhood and Technology. She has written for the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Times Literary Supplement, Poetry Review, and the London Review of Books. And we are so excited to talk to her about Hatching, which is just a fantastic book. I cannot recommend it enough. So thank you so much for joining us, Jenny. Um, And also, I forgot to mention that Jenny is also a mother of a six-year-old daughter. So she has a a wealth of experience in her field and as well as, as a mom. So thank you so much for joining us, Jenny. Thank you, Erin and Marty. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're really delighted to have you, as Erin said, and I echo Erin's um, powerful comments about your book. It really was a remarkable story, and I'm so glad we can bring it to our listeners, um, whether they've had experience with this sort of thing or not, but you were navigating reproductive technology and early motherhood, and you put that into an amazing personal story, but also really tied to um, a very objective scientific perspective as well. And that's something that we especially appreciate. So it really has uh, a lot to offer people, I think, in terms of your candor and and willingness to be vulnerable and, and honest about your journey uh, and your, your uh, very scholarly kind of approach to all issues, I think, based on, on your academic background. So I wonder if you could start by just telling us about when you knew that you needed to write this book. I, I know it was something that was a very compelling, you know, really calling for you to tell your story. How did that take shape for you as you navigated reproductive technology and early motherhood? Sure. So uh, I had most of my career, I'd spent writing about visual art and, um, and poetry and writing. So I, I, I'm used to writing as a critic um, and I teach essay writing and have done so for a long time at NYU. Uh, so when I um, embarked on IVF, and there's a story there to talk about why I decided to do it, uh, the first round of IVF, um, I had an implantation of an embryo, and you have a two-week wait in between implantation and finding out if it's worked. And uh, in those two weeks, um, there that period of time is regularly considered to be a torment. And online, you can find a lot of chat boards with women talking about how they get through the two weeks of not knowing. And for me, it was a really, really interesting moment because it was a torment, um, but also it felt like uh, sort of sliding doors, branching paths, two different futures. And I had no idea which future I was living in. Was I living in the future where I was going to have a baby nine months from then? Or was I living in a future where nothing had happened? And that not knowing, right, which path I was on 
felt extremely interesting to me. And so I started writing about that as a way of dealing with the frustration, right? And in those two weeks, um, part of that time I spent, I was on holiday um, and I was doing a lot of reading about IVF. And what struck me was the more that I read about it, the more I started straying into writing that I hadn't known about when I was a patient, when I was undergoing all of the injections and going for the checkups and, you know, so focused on getting through the stimulation protocols that they assign to you. And you're reading all of these pamphlets and how-to guides. But as I was waiting, right, to find out, I was reading more of the history of how this technique sort of came to be developed, um, the history of how we understand embryos and more of that kind of sociological or medical history understanding um, of pregnancy. And I was amazed to realize how little I knew and also how different the literature had been that I was reading as I was trying to go through IVF as opposed to the literature that I was reading um, when I was waiting to find out if I was pregnant or not. So I was writing, writing, writing because I always write and I was processing, processing. And I finally ended up writing an essay where I finished the essay the day before I knew if I was pregnant or not. So it was, it, the whole essay was written in that kind of weird bubble of radical uncertainty. And I finished the essay and then I found out that I was pregnant, but not really pregnant. So I had some kind of, the embryo was chromosomally abnormal. I write about this in the book. Um, my HCG, which is one of the indicators that you're pregnant, was going up, but it wasn't going up fast enough. And um, I was told that I needed to prepare for a miscarriage. Um, and then I waited and I waited and I waited and the miscarriage didn't come. My body just didn't want to do it. Um, and in the end, I had to go and have a DNC, um, uh, which is, you know, a, a dilation curatage, right? Which is a, another, another name for what happens when you have an abortion. And so in the aftermath of that, I was thinking, wow, like this is what a journey this has been. I was trying to fall pregnant and in the end I had an abortion, right? And the kind of the paradox of that. Um, and I realized that there was just more to write, that I had kind of scratched the surface of something that felt um, extremely ambivalent. There were so many emotions um, tied up with this and also so many ways of thinking about it that I hadn't even thought about when I began. And so this book took a lot, a lot longer to write than two weeks. Um, I think I ended up spending four years writing it. And so uh, that's partly because of the journey that I went on with my fertility. It's partly to do with the research that I did. I ended up traveling to uh, to Belgium and to the UK to interview people there about various kinds of IVF. Um, and it's also because as the mother of a small person um, and also working full time, it just, you know, it just takes longer, right? And um, as a writing mother, that's, that's a hard tension to master um, because, uh, you know, you need to put down, right, um, whatever, whatever it is you're working on often when there's a small child there. Um, so so the, the, the time, the arc of this book is both two weeks and also four or five years. Wow. Well, I, I so appreciate just in my reading of the book how well you handled that kind of both the 
emotionally fraught aspects of reproductive technology and infertility and the way you handled the scientific background. It was so fascinating. And I, I love what you were sharing about what the information you had as a patient and then how little you really get of, of kind of the bigger picture of what happens. And as a clinician, you know, I, I think it's really important to think about that. What what information are the patients given and what is left out? And I mean, obviously you can't give patients an entire medical history of whatever it is that you're addressing, but there's a lot more to that story, which was part of what was so, um, you know, interesting in, in your book. And I really, from the very beginning, was hooked. I, I, I literally read it in, in one sitting. Um, and I loved the opening when you're talking about Naomi Mitchison's book, Memoirs of a Space Woman. And it was just such an interesting way to enter into your story. Can you explain why that was an important place to begin for you? Yes. So uh, Naomi Mitchison was a Scottish uh, writer who was grew up in Oxford and studied there, but her education was profoundly different than her brother, J.B.S. Haldane. And both of them were doing... Um, uh, experiments with guinea pigs when they were children. They were both children of, of a scientist. And she was every mu much the sort of intellectual match for her brother. But very quickly, what was available to her started to kind of differ from what was available to her brother. And her brother took her along with him. They hung out together when he was studying at Oxford and she also studied, but she studied a slightly different course of instruction. And one of their friends was Aldous Huxley. So, and I think we all know Aldous Huxley from writing Brave New World. Um, and so they were all very interested in the idea of ectogenesis, which is babies in bottles, right? The idea that you could have an artificial womb. And a number of people in their social set ended up writing um, speculative writing about what it might mean to outsource reproduction in that way. And uh, Naomi Mitchison married and went on to be a, a, a prolific writer. And by the time she died, um, she died, I think, when she was 101, maybe, or 99, and she had published 90 books, right? And in 1962, when she was in her 60s, I want to say, she published this novel called Memoirs of a Space Woman, uh, which was her first science fiction novel, and in it, she's describing the various biological expeditions that a space woman called Mary makes um, over the course of a number of years, right? Off-world expeditions. And I was just so tickled or thrilled at the idea of this Scottish woman in her 60s returning to these ideas of reproductive experiments that she'd been discussing when she was 18, 19, 20 years old and writing a novel that really is in some way talking to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which had been published 30 years or so earlier. And it really struck me that her vision of reproductive uh, experimentation is so different from Huxley's, even though they were part of the same social set. And when you look at accounts of IVF, so many newspaper articles 
talk about brave new world, right? Like whenever there's a kind of technology uh, uh, announcement, there will be all these op-ed writers talking about the brave new world and the dystopian future, right? And I was like, what would it be like if instead of the go-to cultural reference, if the, if the go-to cultural references was Mitchison's book, Memoirs of a Space Woman, because it is so much more optimistic about what it means for a woman to undergo some kind of reproductive experiment. So in the book, she has six children. Two of them are uh, sort of Martian children, right? One of the children is a graft, which is a six foot long tentacle that she grows from her thigh that she communicates with through number theory and listening to music. I mean, it's, it's so wonderfully crazy. And it really challenged me to rethink some of my um, the, sort of the, the expectations about what it means to think about reproductive experimentation from the point of view of a biologist, because she's, she's got this biologist's eye for cause and effect in the book. And the book's written very dryly. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it's written very factually, clinically almost at times. Uh, and so even though this book had been published in 1962, when I read it in 2017 or so, it really struck me like an arrow, right? Like, like I, I felt this real effect on me and I was so grateful to her that she'd written it. And so I think the reason why I begin the book is in a way kind of wanting to name and thank the fact that these books can come like arrows from the past and hit you right when you least expect it. That's just an amazing story. I, I just love that. And I have not read that book, but I'm putting it at the top of my list now. It sounds really fascinating. Um, this is a, a, a bit of a shift from that wonderful story, but in your book, there's one moment in particular where you talk about the development of gynecology as a medical discipline in America. And um, I, I've thought a lot about gynecology over the years of, of my life and my work with many, um, many obstetricians, gynecologists, and other people in um, maternal child care. And I, I was fascinated with your approach to this. So I wonder if you could just tell us why you think it's so important to keep this history in mind when women are contemplating IVF and, and you just had a lot of experiences that really highlighted why that is so important. Sure. So uh, if you go to any kind of gynecological checkup, right, as a sexually active woman, there are a certain sort of key features of this experience. You, you know, you sit on a reclining chair, you're gently edged back, the person tells you to inch forward, right? You, you, you often are, um, there's some kind of use of the speculum, which is a, an instrument that's inserted into your vagina and then it clicks open so they can see your cervix more clearly. Um, when you go through IVF, you often undergo, one of the first things you do is a transvaginal ultrasound which is where they use ultrasound technology to look to see how many follicles you have in your ovaries because they want to stimulate those follicles, right? So there are these certain kind of, it's not prosaic because it feels pretty intense at the time, but there are, there are sort of basic rep repetitions of these kinds of instruments and features of this kind of visit. And when I did more research into how these things were developed, that's when it became particularly interesting to me. So the speculum, one of the people who claims to have invented the speculum, um, 
is a guy called um, Jay, Jay Marion Sims, who's considered to be the father of modern gynecology in the United States. And he says he invented it somewhat contested since there are descriptions of a very similar instrument that existed well before he, he says he invented it. But he published an autobiography uh, late in his life called The Story of My Life. And in that, he describes how he invented the speculum. And he tells the story of a, a woman, a white woman, who fell off her horse and somehow retroverted her uterus. And um, he was able to, sort of in examining her, he suddenly realized that if he could use two spoons, he could, he could insert them inside a vagina and kind of use them to, to pry the walls of the, the vaginal wall apart. And at the same time that he's describing this sort of aha moment for him, he was experimenting on a number of um, African-American enslaved women who had suffered what was called a vesicovaginal fistula, which is in childbirth, a tear, right, that often occurs when the, when the birth has been prolonged or, um, and it means that there's a hole and urine and feces can kind of sort of move in and out of, um, you got, you, the two of you are going to be able to say this more accurately than I am, but basically it's kind of an incontinence that it's really hard to address and it's sort of socially embarrassing um, and a number of enslaved women in his area were suffering from this. And he was experimenting with surgeries to see if he could address it um, because these women couldn't give birth. And at the time, that was a priority for their slave owners, right? That they needed to keep on giving birth. Um, and what was shocking to me was the sort of the difference in how he described the invention of the speculum and then the invention of his surgical technique for addressing vesicovaginal fistula. And his attention to women and whether they were enslaved black women or white women is shocking to read because he had absolutely no qualms about treating these two groups of women with completely different levels of dignity and in experimenting on these enslaved African-American women, right? in ways that you'd, he just would not dream of experimenting on his, his white patients. And I know this is part of the sort of the history of the time. He doesn't seem to be embarrassed at all about it, but it really struck me because going into that gynecologist's office, right, in 2019 and sitting on that chair and suddenly thinking, well, that chair was in some ways designed, right, by his own, um, his own contribution to the field. In his book, The Story of My Life, he gives his design for the chair that he thinks he invented for white women. So I'm sitting on a chair, right, that's in some way a development of the, his, his work with white women, but that was on the backs of black women's pain and suffering because he never invented that chair for the people, the enslaved women that he was operating on he only invented that chair for the white woman that he was treating later in New York City. So these kind of historical echoes, right? This is where the speculum comes from. This is where the examination chair comes from, where ultrasound was developed. Um, that also has its own history. And, and it's very interesting thinking about the history of sound and diagnosis. And so the research is in part trying to trace back these historical echoes that continue today 
that we not we may not be consciously aware of, but they still do structure some of the consultation processes that we undergo today. Wow. Yeah, that was so fascinating, uh, that history and shocking and, and horrifying at the same time. And there's countless stories like this throughout medicine and, um, and science where so much of science is, um, you know, not, uh, does not have a uh, ethical past, <laughs> to say it in the most light way. And I think this really relates to uh, another huge challenge in medicine, which is disparity, racial disparity uh, and financial disparity and all the other disparities that we see uh, and that I see every day as a clinician. And I think this is uh, really so palpable when it comes to reproductive technology and who has access to this. And so, um, you know, reading your book and knowing, uh, you know, people who have been through this process, people who would have loved to go through this process, and it was not financially feasible, um, the costs of IVS are, are exorbitant. And um, of course, I have huge concerns about that disparity and then what that means for families that want to have children and, and would benefit from these technologies and simply cannot use them. And so you discuss in the book the possibility of low-cost IVF, and I was very interested in this. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So there's a, a, um, a doctor in Belgium, Willem Ombelet, who um, is originally from South Africa. Um, he has been, for decades, working on trying to develop low-cost IVF for Africa, for, for the developing world. Um, and... One of the things he's done is with another colleague, Dr. Jonathan Van Blurkom, he's developed a um, sort of a test tube kit, which uses radically simplified methods of, um, of keep maintaining the, the temperature of these test tubes. And it fits inside a shoebox and it looks like a high school experiment. I mean, and the cost is about a high school experiment. Those materials cost about $10 to that, that kit, right? And he rethought um, how, what, what kind of sperm concentration you need. He rethought um, how much hormone stimulation you need. He rethought how many times you actually need to look at the, um, at the embryo to sort of track it, right? Because if you have to look at it fewer times, there's less material infrastructure costs in storing it and in incubating it. Um, and basically he developed uh, a form of low-cost IVF that would cost about 900 euros to 1,000. That's if it was taking place in a country with a kind of fairly robust medical infrastructure where you had access to an operating theatre, you had access to kind of standards of care, right? Um, so he did clinical trials in Belgium first, and this form of low-cost IVF was just as successful, if not actually a fractionally more successful than conventional forms of IVF. And then for, I, I don't know, maybe more than a decade, he's been trying to achieve the same results in, um, in Africa, particularly in Ghana. Uh, it's a lot harder because the infrastructure is different, right? And so um, he's had to rethink some of the assumptions around that 1,000 euro price tag because the clinics themselves have to rely on different standards of infrastructure there. Um, but it still remains very possible, as particularly in the developed world, for the cost of IVF to be, sub be substantially lower. 
Yeah. Imagine how radically different life would be if everyone had access to IVF for 900 to 1,000 euros. I mean, right now, it's something that's definitely for the economically privileged or for the well-insured in the United States. Uh, and, you know, Dr. Ombalit, he makes um, a really pressing case for why it's important for every woman, regardless of where she is in the world, to have access to this kind of, of um, option because it gives a, a woman so much more power in being able to sort of chart her fertility journey, right? Um, and in sub-Saharan Africa, where secondary infertility is very, very high, IVF is actually quite crucial. And particularly in societies where having a child is absolutely crucial to your economic well-being. I mean, there are areas where it's not just depression or social stigma if you can't have a child. Um, the consequences are far more severe. You can be disowned from your family. You can't inherit money. You can be, you know, the, the, the scale, right, of the consequences of infertility are really striking in those areas. Well, I'm just amazed, Jenny, at uh, all the different facets of this whole issue of infertility and reproductive technology that you address in this book. And yet it's a very personal story and a very conceptual uh, kind of analysis of the meaning of motherhood in many ways, and and certainly motherhood under these new and um, and you know quite revolutionary procedures. One of the recurring questions that comes up in the book is about the relationship between aesthetics and image making. You know, sort of all of those idealized notions of what motherhood means, what it looks and feels like. Um, and um, and the realities of that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you tried to address that relationship. Sure. So, uh, so my, my my family, my you know my mom, my dad, my extended family, they all live in New Zealand. Uh, so when I found out that I was pregnant and the pregnancy looked like it was going to you know go full to, to go through to full term. Um, I didn't have support structures um, or people around me who would tell me what it meant to be, you know, to be a mother, right? And in that vacuum, I think other forms of knowledge creep in, particularly through the internet. So, uh, you know, it's really interesting to me how we learn how to become a mother um, in this day and age and what role um, the internet plays and uh, how we're kind of trained to conceive of being an effective mum or being a, a useful mum, a good enough mum in the first year or two. And I was fascinated by how many gadgets and gizmos and objects um, it seemed to be necessary for any, res you know, respecting first-time mum to buy. And um, at the playground, I was amazed by the level of shop talk, right? All the parents talking about, is it this a sippy cup or is it this backpack? And I started wondering whether the love of objects, right, is, a, is in some ways an indication of an anxiety about what it means to live in a society that might treat a baby as an object as well, as the ultimate acquisition. Um, and so uh, part of the book is about trying to make sense of what it means to create a domestic space and how quickly that desire to, cre to create a domestic space 
is wound up in how good looking that domestic space is, right? How pretty it is. And whether it's possible to separate um, that pressure to make something beautiful um, from the desire to create a domestic space. Like, can you separate the two um, when social media is telling you pretty quickly that, that, that they're very intertwined? Um, and so I started thinking about ritual and what the difference is between ritual and purchasing power. Um, and so the, the last two chapters of the book are really thinking about uh, can I create a space that's free of those pressures? And can I create that space, particularly if I've spent so much of my life invested in art, which is the very epitome, right, of, of beautiful space? Um, so these are personal questions that are pressing for me. Uh, but I, I feel like, you know, there's a really distinct pressure to think about how aesthetically pleasing your life is in this age of Instagram. Um, and uh, so I, I don't think that question is, is, is foreign to others. I think other people quietly wrestle with it too. Um, I, uh, I, think, I think I've solved it, but I'd have, to, I'd have to tell you to read the book how because it's pretty complicated. <laughs> um, it takes two chapters to get to the conclusion. But I, I think the secret basically is in thinking about ritual in relationship to motherhood. And, and what you're trying to create in terms of a ritual when you raise your child. I love that. Well, uh, it, this is a, a phenomenal book, Hatching Experiments in Motherhood and Technology. And we're so grateful to have you here, Jenny Quilter. And uh, we, we hope you'll keep us posted on your future writings. And uh, we'd love to have you back again. It was wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you both so much. Oh, thank you. And thanks for writing this phenomenal book. I'm Erin here with my mom, Marty, and we are Mom Enough. And thanks to you for tuning in as well. We hope you'll tune in again next week for another episode of Mom Enough. Content copyrighted by Marty and Erin Erickson. All rights reserved. Visit momenough.com for an archive of all Mom Enough shows and many free downloadable resources on child development, parenting, and maternal health and well-being. I'll have a show called Kid Enough someday.